Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald Deep Dives. I'm Dave Newsom, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I am joined today by an agent of the end times, John Galati, writer supreme over at Comic Book Herald. How's it going, John? It's going great. I'm excited to be talking East to West. Yeah, we are talking about Jonathan Hickman written, Nick Dragota arted, and uh, Frank Martin colored East of West today. We are going to be doing the first 29 issues That's year one and year two of the apocalypse of this Image comic series that launched in 2013. And we are going to be doing this as part one of an East of West spectacular as the series gears up for its conclusion in early 2020. We'll be doing part two in January of this month and talk about the final years of the apocalypse. Now, John and I have been having some back and forth. I'm calling them journals from Armageddon. I'll include a link here in the show notes. I'm going to publish these over on Comic Book Herald so you can kind of see our conversation leading up to this point. But what we wanted to do today is reflect back on what is writer Jonathan Hickman's longest uh, and perhaps most celebrated creator-owned series. It's the one that we have ranked number 12 on the best comics of the decade list. It's the highest-ranked creator-owned Jonathan Hickman book and uh, it's you know it's definitely one of the biggest image hits from an era really 2012 to like 2015 I tend to label it uh, when image was kind of in a golden age kind of in a renaissance and and seemingly could do no wrong you had 2012 you had saga 2013 you had an insane batch of of greatness including east to west we also had Reminder's black science deadly class Greg yeah. Rucka and and Michael Lark on Lazarus uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Emma Rios on Pretty Deadly, Rat Queens launched that year, Sex Criminals by Matt Fraction and uh, and Chip Zdarsky. So, like, there's this huge wave. There's a huge influx of Image Comics properties that I think even today we still think of as their biggest hits, even though it's six years later. East of West, I think, is signaling the fact that it's the end of that era, appropriately, yeah. a, that it should signal the end times <laughs> as it comes to a conclusion. So we're going to talk a little bit about what we love about this, what we find interesting, what is perhaps um, a, a broader sort of like, what does East of West cover? What sort of, you know, how does it, how is its reflection of the apocalypse something that is just sort of always in the public consciousness as a potentially interesting storytelling measure? So... Let's get into it. East of West Part 1. Again, issues number 1 to number 29. John, first question I have for you is, is is East of West as good as its reputation? And if it is, how does it manage that? I think it is. This is one of those rare comics that I think actually holds up to to a lot of what people say about it. But on rereading it, I was surprised to find out that it holds up in a very different way than what I expected. Yeah. Like, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I had forgotten how little the beginning of it was action-oriented and how much right. it was pursuing goals in a different way, which I think makes it a, a superb book. But, you know, it's very different than kind of what you expect from the end of the world. And that time and time again, the series really delivers on this idea of making us, making readership question how we think the world should end, what we expect or demand of an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fascinating take, and it's kind of gutsy when you think about how common the apocalypse is to both pop culture and to comics mediums. Right. So to back it up, East of West, for those who are less familiar, is a story. It jumps in the year 2064. It's a 
semi-alternate history, I suppose. Mm. It's um, a little Watchmen-like in the sense of it's our world, but imagine if the Civil War played out differently, essentially. Mm-hmm. And in, in the wake of the Civil War, instead of the Union winning and the nation remaining together, the country fractures. And basically we get, I believe it's seven different segments of America. So this mm. is a look at America, and I, I do think it's important to note There is the rest of the world. (laughs) The rest of the world is out there during this story. We just don't hardly ever see it until like a mention of it in issue Mm -hmm. 20-something when when the Confederacy is working with Japan. But, you know, you have the Union. You have the Confederacy. You have like a New Orleans kingdom, essentially, of the South. You have Texas Mm -hmm. as its own standalone kingdom. You have the PRA, which is the People's Republic uh, in California. You have uh, the Endless Nation as kind of the most fascinating addition to this mythos, mm. to them like this yeah. future, so almost quite ours, uh, American dream or American um, nightmare, I guess, in this case, of the Endless Nation who are Native Americans, who are are small in number, in population, but have developed this incredible technology and are clearly like the superior force, I guess, in this American world, which is, I think, a really interesting flip an inverse of the way America has typically treated Native Americans, subjugating, pushing them out of their land, right? It's sort of them reclaiming their power in this world, okay? So you have all these different factions, and then you also have a very supernatural, religious, mythological insertion of the literal four horsemen of the apocalypse are with death as sort of our main character. And when we start the story, the four horsemen of the apocalypse have already come, They came to Earth, but death, he fell in love. And he fell in love with who will go on to become the the premier, I believe. uh, Is it it the Mao? Mao of the the PRA? She's the leader for all intents and purposes. Yeah. And, um, and, And fell in love and had a child. So death, the horseman, he has separated. Things have broken. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are no longer together in the way that we picture them. And that is kind of where we start our story is... The apocalypse. The three horsemen remaining are trying to make the apocalypse happen in a nice orderly fashion. Death is unleashing chaos, and mm-hmm. we have all this political intrigue going on around the powers that be, those who are aware of this religion and contributing to it, mm-hmm. and trying to manufacture the end times for reasons that I will say remain quite mysterious <laughs> throughout <laughs> most of the run. Um, yeah. You know, and um, and then you have those who are just sort of trying to maintain like you know, the actual state of things in this in this sort of broken, fractured America. So there's a lot to it. And I think that is the thing that East of West does best is it's really not it's not like the main protagonist, I guess, is death. You know, he's all white, this pale white horseman. He's very much a Western style, like, you know, lawman. But there are so many characters. The story's about the world. Mm -hmm. You know, the story's about the world dealing with the apocalypse and structurally it flows that way Mm -hmm. it bounces from character to kingdom to to narrative like with with almost reckless abandon but it Mm -hmm. never feels it never feels to me at least um like it doesn't know what it's doing which i think is one of hickman's strengths so that's east of west in short one thing I was saying to you before we started, John, is mm-hmm. I think East of West is – I constantly, as it was coming out, had the experience of feeling like I needed to go back and read it all again to understand what was happening. And while that's a good thing in some ways, it's also really hard when you're on, like, issue 18 and the third year of publication 
And yeah. I don't actually want to read 17 issues to get back to this point. Now, right. binging it again, binging it again works brilliantly. Yeah. Is this a book that was always destined for the binge? You know what I mean? Like I, like most books should be. Like, Is this one almost 100% you almost need to read it all at once to kind of appreciate it? I think... Yeah, I think it might have been. You know, I, I kind of want to start by saying that given the difficulties that this book has had in, in coming out on time or coming out at all at certain points in times, that there's a part of me that wonders if there wasn't a different East of West script that was available at some point and they changed it to follow, you know, the publication uh, schedule that they could manage. Yeah. So it, it's it's hard for me to say that it was always destined to be binged in the way this one was. But... Yeah, like going back over it, it reminds me a lot of classic plays. Um, we were talking about it beforehand, but mm. I had the experience of reading it through the second time and following very different characters than I did the first time. That yeah. I picked a whole new set of protagonists for the most part and kind of zeroed in on them as I was reading. Um, people who I kind of missed the first time around, really. Yeah, And it still holds up and tells this incredibly interesting story. And the the binging aspect of it, I think, does the best for me in that it it does a great job of pointing out really the historical accuracies or I guess what we should say are historical truths of some event for for this older version of America, mm -hmm. because the the PRC in its structure of having various different Maos feels like it's finally completely taken over Buddhism. Like. Yeah. It, which has been kind of an uncomfortable back and forth between the Chinese government and the religion for ages. But in that sense, it has this really clear idea of a Chinese monoculture kind of situation yeah. that's going on there. The situation that's happening with the endless nation and their you know way crazy technology is one, I realized this time, kind of a nice little nod to the... Um, the supernatural assumptions that some people have about certain Native American tribes, that yeah. there's this idea that when the Sioux and the Lakota disappeared, that they were actually taken away and became star people, mm -hmm. which is this nice little like, I don't know if that's what he was intending, but it feels like a nice nod. It was also very interesting to see what that technology did to the humanity of these people. Yeah, There's that great scene. I don't want to get too specific early on. But there's that great scene early on where there's the, the big fight, uh, the political get-together between the different forces of darkness, basically. And the... Uh, the Chosen. The, the Chosen, chosen thank you. Yeah. Yes, The Chosen. And the head of the, uh, the Endless Nation says, we are the only lives that matter. Yeah, Which right. is so the antithesis of any kind of Native American folklore, which is you know devastating and terrifying to me. I think that's where binging has really helped me because it's helped me connect all the little dots along the way. Yeah, yeah. I do think there's e each faction of this world is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's one of East of West's greatest strengths is when the, bo when the book opens with one of the seven new territories. Maybe we mm -hmm. haven't been to the kingdom in a while, right? I was just saying mm -hmm. how Crown Prince John Freeman is like, has become one of my favorite characters, even though the first read... I couldn't have told you hardly a thing about him. Yeah. Um, it, when we travel to these places, you want to know how they work. You mm -hmm. want, I, or I should say, I want to know sort of how they got that way and what it's like actually living in this world, right? And and the political rulers, like the decisions that they make, you know, mm -hmm. and the sacrifices and sort of the, 
the tug and pull that they've had in terms of maintaining who they are, but also maintaining their presence in this world that is, when we start the book, not yet at war, but by the time year one is over, is very much at war because, you know, it's like everything's on a knife's edge, right? You can tell. Yeah. Like there's there's the apocalypse coming, but then there's also like the normal standard just we are going to go to war because we are political <laughs> rivals and yeah. we are trying to occupy a, a relatively similar space. Um, so I do think that's one of the most fascinating things about this book is it bounces around this world super successfully. It's almost always intriguing. And I, there are a few books that I can't quite put down like East of West for reasons that are almost hard to explain. You know, like I, I think... One of the things about it is it sort of just feels like it never ends, even with cliffhangers and with hanging threads. Like it's almost just one big conversation. Yeah. Like it's just one big fascinating conversation about the fate of this world. And to stop feels like to stop in mid conversation. And it's always like, well, I might as well read the next issue because this isn't this isn't a stopping place. Like it's not even. It's not even like a cliffhanger. Like, I have to know what happens. I mean, I do want to know what happens next. Um, but it's also just like, I want to hear this person finish their sentence. I want to <laughs> hear Chamberlain's next witticism. Um, mm-hmm. So before we get to, I think, kind of like the use of, of the apocalypse and and some of your thoughts on kind of why that resonates in such a way as East to West does, I do want to talk about Hickman as a creator here, um, not to overlook Dragota and his art, which is, I mean, if Nick Dragota is not the artist on the book, this book doesn't work the way that yeah. it does. Like the designs and this this world that is futuristic yet ours, you know, and, mm-hmm. and even like Death riding his, I think it's an Endless Nation horse that is like a cylinder with a laser <laughs> eye. You know, it's like it's right. got this proto-future, um, almost cyberpunk look to it and it's all like every every design when they show the white tower in the union when they show the black towers in the confederacy i'm like this book looks astonishing when it shows beasts and demons and violence it's Mm -hmm. grotesque it's horrifying you know like there there are so many eyeballs in this book if you've got uh if you're squeamish about eyeballs you might want to reconsider east of west because the tendrils and the the fluids and just everything about it is just it's gross but then there's also like beauty to it you know, mm-hmm. like the, it knows when to step back and just or Dakota and, and Martin and the team knows when to step back and show sort of the remaining beauty in this world before it mm-hmm. comes to its end. But Hickman obviously has made his name at Marvel writing some incredible stories that I am a huge fan of. I pick them for my favorite comics of the decade, all of Hickman's Marvel work. East of West is a real I think uh, it's a real test for how you feel about his writing style. Because yeah. if if you are into it, as I am, and I think you are, it is sort of the like almost the perfect distillation of the way that he clearly prefers to write, which is mm-hmm. to have everyone speak as if they are writing down like a philosophical quote. Like yeah. every sentence is a quotable, you know, and no one speaks in in stutters or or paused cadences like I'm doing mm-hmm. now, you know, in just natural like trying to formulate a thought. Everyone mm-hmm. has formulated every thought they're ever going to have and distilled it down to these incredible like you should frame them on a wall above your computer yeah. quotables. That's what that's how almost everyone talks at all times. And he's Kickman is still able to generate character through this. Like death 
has a briskness to him. He is mm-hmm. the Western lawman, right? Chamberlain, uh, the Southern leader of the Confederacy, he has a an arrogance and sort of a uh, detached hubris to him. He is constantly scheming. And, mm-hmm. right, you get bits of character through it, but everyone also has a sameness to them in that they will respond with, you know, like these very fully formed, well-articulated mm-hmm. ideas at all times. And I actually had the thought, Brian Michael Bendis, the writer who did so much work at Marvel, comes under fire a lot now for his style of dialogue that is just, yeah. it is so familiar because he's used the same thing for approximately 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> of, What's that? Decompression. Decompression and of having, you know, a panel of back and forth with right, with characters saying, hey, are you talking to me? Y- yeah, I'm talking to you. T- me, right? Yeah, yeah, you. And, right, he just does that thing. And it's become kind of mockable and memeable. Mm-hmm. I think Hickman's actually would be similarly mockable if it wasn't so hard to replicate. Because to replicate it, you have to have everyone respond like they're geniuses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's just hard to come up with. So uh, that's the thing where I can read. There's a there's a degree of focus and there's a degree of attention I have to pay to everyone mm-hmm. talking to literally understand what they're saying. They are not necessarily complex words, but they are complex thoughts. Sometimes I think they don't mean anything at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just it's almost an, it's a atmosphere, you know, that it's creating. Um, but it's like I can't so rarely are characters just saying like, here's a thing I'm doing. It's it's like here's an idea I had about the state of of avarice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, let me reflect on that for a moment. So, what do you think about the writing style of East of West? And do you because because I think he uses similar things. Mm-hmm. In, and and like I said, like there there is humor in this yeah. book. It comes out especially later when we get to Babylon, who's the mm-hmm. the great beast potentially and the son of death and and uh, and Jowlin. Um Hickman's writing. Do you think like Am I overstating how perhaps uh, I don't want to say repetitive because that doesn't feel right, but how how stylistically uniform it can feel? No, I agree with you there. I think it's interesting how it sometimes gets used for effect. Like you said, um, you brought up the fact that you feel that sometimes there are characters who are saying things and saying nothing. I think yeah. that Hickman did a great job with that with Bell Solomon, especially early on. Yeah, Bell is the one guy who doesn't really believe. And probably within nine, ten issues, I very much got the idea that he was talking because he knew he had to say something to get through the next five minutes. Mm. Like, I I have to prove I belong at this table. I have to prove I'm actually a believer. So I'm just going to ramble. Yeah. And and that was that was an interesting kind of subversion of Hickman's own trope. Uh, the part that I've been just utterly fascinated by since the beginning was how little Hickman's apocalypse has to do with any other apocalypse, really. Mm. Like, it's not it's not super tied into the Judeo-Christian ideas because there's no... There's not really forces of heaven and hell. You know, there's not, there like, are, good there and are bad. There are demons here, there, but certainly yeah. there are not gods. No, there's no god. I don't think. And there's not really... I don't know. They, they seem to be more relying on human beings being more the, the force of darkness than demons being it, right? Well, like and, that, and that feels like a strong theme is yeah. a pessimism and a a deep lack of hope in humanity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That That's definitely at the heart of this. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, in terms of iconology or iconography, rather, 
you know, there's no flaming swords. There's no rivers of blood or, um, you know, so many other things that we usually associate with that aspect. Right. It doesn't have a big tie in with any of the Eastern apocalyptic stuff that I've been reading. Um, it, it's it's fascinating because it's kind of just his own take and his own idea, which I like. Yeah, it, it mm-hmm. pays some lip service. It's got the the beast um, that's slouching or Babylon rather. And uh, the great beast, it's got, you know, the four horsemen. But sort of after that, it doesn't have a whole lot. Isn't it almost like isn't it almost like the pop culture Christianity version of the apocalypse? Like if you if you take like, yeah, I've never read Revelations, mm-hmm. but I could tell you like, oh, yeah, like there's the the beast of the apocalypse and there's the four horsemen like not not to make a go House of X territory, but like it's right. almost the X-Men apocalypse version. Almost. Of the apocalypse, right? Yeah, I can see it, that. Is it? Do you think it's missing something? Not taking on other elements. The first time I read it, I sort of did. Like yeah. I was sort of, I was maybe a little bit disappointed. But going through it this time, I've I felt by not taking on those elements, which come with like loaded presuppositions, presuppositions rather. Mm-hmm. Um, without taking on those elements, Hickman was kind of free to say his own stuff. Yeah. And say, like, this is what this means. This is, you know, this is what I'm concerned about in this part of the story. Um, You know, I think that's been a really brave and gutsy move on his part. Because it doesn't, it doesn't pull much from, like, Terminator, which people usually pull from. It doesn't pull from Akira, which people usually pull from if they're doing pop culture apocalypses. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have, maybe it has a little bit of the Matrix, um, but not much. You know, it's it's a real gutsy move to have this kind of stripped down efficient apocalypse yeah. that doesn't hide behind pyrotechnics and special effects. I've been... Well that's that's a really interesting point because generally when you think of apocalypse narratives mm-hmm. there's a lot of like post fallout and we talked about this a little or in our, our note exchange but like literally the video game fallout is one that comes to mind for me that is sure. post nuclear apocalypse. Sure. Here the apocalypse is building and brewing but like everything's kind of fine, you know, yeah. like the the world is there's a lot of tension like mm-hmm. we feel in our world. Right. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of tension, but actually everyone's like no, nothing's been uh, uh, nuked yet. Nothing has no. been blown up until we get to year two and like war begins. But even that is still like, well, it's not the apocalypse yet, mm-hmm. you know, even though we know because we have these behind the scenes views of the chosen and the message and their religious belief yeah. that, you know, and we, and obviously we've seen so much of the three horsemen who are conquest, war and famine, who are, are mm-hmm. attempting to bring this about. Like we know it's coming and they're building to it, but actually it's a, it's a pre-apocalypse book that is almost all about like the inevitability of, of this coming apocalypse as opposed to, Hey, it already happened. Here's, mm-hmm. here's how people are coping, you know? Yeah. I- I've got a slight bone to pick about pre-apocalypse versus post-apocalypse, but I agree with a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, it's 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 just so endlessly fascinating to me. Um, I like the fact that there's not a ton of direct conflict early on, yeah, which is another hallmark of like uh, of traditional pop culture apocalypse stuff. And I also really, um, oh, there's another aspect that I'm now blanking on, but there's a. It it does so many things so well and so intelligently. Oh, what I was thinking. Um, The idea that, like, the end of the world comes on slowly and always feels like within the normal parameters. Mm. You know, you can... Yeah. 
later on, you can see uh, the capital city of the Union is kind of falling apart. It's it's descending into martial law and just total chaos. There, uh, the the Madam President is arresting just civilians in the street and executing them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's terrible. But the the fact that that feels like almost a normal political happenstance is crazy. Yeah, right. But it's just built to that point. And on top of which, the fact that like that would be at any other time a sign of the apocalypse, this level of unrest. But mm-hmm. now we have media and we have marketing and we have spin so we can keep people from realizing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a scary thought. <laughs> I think actually the more I think about it and, and hear you say that, I do think you're right. I'm calling it pre-apocalypse, but really, really what it is is just the apocalypse happening and we haven't realized it yet. <laughs> yeah, a really well-managed apocalypse. Like the right, because by started... the time, well, I was just going to say, by the time you, you realize it happened, it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> that was the end. You exactly. Know? So the the actual act of it happening is earlier. You know, I, I mentioned something earlier that I just thought about and I was, I was going to ask about a little bit like, so this series was slated to to be developed on Amazon Prime for a TV show, and mm-hmm. I was I was thinking so much about as you talk about this, like how similar to Game of Thrones East to West feels. I, I do think, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, the things that make it intriguing and the things that make it so popular are it's the fact that it is Game of Thrones is a medieval knights and knights and dragons story, mm-hmm. but the focus is on characters and almost more than anything like political intrigue. You know, mm-hmm. it's about like power and and manifestations and the ways people strive to keep it. It's like mm-hmm. it's a thinking. You know, it's it, not to be overly whatever. You know, uh, pretending I'm smarter than I am, but it's a, it's the thinking man's knights and dragons, right? Sure. And and east of west feels like the same thing, but for the apocalypse. Yeah. I was thinking, um, but I do have to just note. Uh, I just googled east of west TV deal because I was curious when that might happen. Apparently, okay. that's not happening anymore. <laughs> I guess, I guess it was announced earlier this summer that uh, the Amazon Prime deal fell through, which is actually really a bummer because I it was is. really looking forward to seeing this world because uh, I think it has that Game of Thrones potential in terms of, of storytelling where it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's action here and you're going to dig that too. Um, mm-hmm. But it's really just about these characters saying and plotting, uh, you know, these like these really, really high concept ideas. Oh, yeah. But the budget for that thing would have been astronomical i That's can't true. i cannot imagine how much money they would have to spend just yeah. on makeup like just oh <laughs> right right um okay so east to west apocalypse you mentioned mm-hmm. in our notes that it kind of takes on uh it definitely early on more mm-hmm. so even than anything a, a western feel yeah so it's got because death is a cowboy you know mm-hmm. he even gets his eye patch eventually yeah um you know he's, a, he's got his six shooters and it, but he's still the death horseman uh, mm-hmm. It feels like a Western in the apocalypse. And you were kind of asking, like, is the Western the American, you know, is like, is that just the setting for the American apocalypse that makes yeah. the most sense? My my response to this, I was looking first at like the Fallout video games where it is very mm-hmm. much like it feels like, you know, yeah, you're going into like old town saloons in this sure. apocalypse. Like it feels like the Western is almost a. Um, a regression to Americana becomes mm-hmm. a a like post fallout apocalypse. I was curious mm-hmm. if you had more thoughts since we've talked about like why if why a western might make sense for an apocalypse setting, and then also like do you think East to West holds up as a sort of western as it progresses? Because I think it gets away from it a bit. To answer the second question first, I would definitely agree that it gets away from it after a while. Yeah, uh, I think that that's sort of just an early framing device for it. 
Yeah. For me, I think there's a good argument to be made that the Western could be the American version of the apocalypse, either because it represents manifest destiny and some of the the most stressful and bloody parts of American history, really. Because mm-hmm. like the, the Western has its roots in the Civil War and then builds out from there into the gold rush and um, practically until like the beginning of television almost. Certainly the beginning of radio is when the yeah. Western period falls off. And it's it has a whole lot of ideas about our national identity, about individualism and the fact that might makes right, um, this concept of frontier justice and our inability to be comfortable underneath the rule of an authority. All those things stand pretty well, but I don't know. It's, it's also really an uncomfortable question um, because it does strike so much at our own idealism. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we have so lionized the idea of the sheriff keeping the town safe or the cowboy protecting his his family and his land sure that it gets really uncomfortable to to kind of say like well what were you protecting these things from and what was sort of the degradation of the western over time where like originally ironically the western was more evenly split between uh at least on television was more evenly split between the idea of uh the the white Anglo-Saxon people fighting the, the quote-unquote savage Native American, tragically, yeah. uh, and the idea of white people having to fight other white people because <laughs> racism sort of prevented us from hiring enough actors of color to maintain a racist story, st- like storyline in a lot of cases. <laughs> Jeez, like we usually wound up having irony. to hire yeah. people who are um, Italian or something to, to play Native Americans, which is bizarre. Or Jewish, which is also kind of strange and scary. Right. Um, so we wound up writing a lot of stories about how it's basically like the same idea of um, of Roadhouse, right? That like you have yeah, this town that's Max. under siege by a rich guy who's buying up parts of it and terrorizing the locals and taking the women. And a cowboy comes from out of town to lay waste to these things, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's John Wayne or it's um, um, Clint Eastwood in Pale Rider or whatever else. You know? Yeah. Uh, the, and the fact that we kind of drifted away from that over time is a, a whole story unto itself. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a whole weird thing, but it's fascinating to me the way that it, it lines up together well, the idea that westerns almost always take place out in the dry arid desert Mm -hmm. they are full of cruelty and it's very easy to overlay a biblical apocalyptic image on top of that yeah uh and then you have westerns like pale rider or el topo who do it you know intentionally so yeah i do think death the character of who is yeah i kind of said at the front like if anyone's the protagonist it's death even though Mm -hmm. one of the curious things about this book is we'll go issues without without hardly seeing him or seeing him for one or two panels um we almost always see death in those arid desert westerny conditions or he's walking into a saloon like there's a moment Mm. very early on where we actually see him in the city in the future world you know in the in the white tower um you know assassinating the president is kind of the book's big opening kick but like otherwise we generally see him traveling the wastelands as as a sort of a western figure i do think 
Two, I don't know the significance of it, or I have to think there's some thought behind this. He's also traveling with members of the Endless Nation and the Native Americans, so you're mm-hmm. almost instantly subverting the yeah. white cowboy versus Indian, tr- um, right. cowboys and Indians, you know, sort of like trope that that obviously is steeped in a lot of a lot of racial baggage. Um, so, like, that's I, I imagine an attempt to be like, yeah, we're not we're not doing that. We're doing the opposite yeah. of that, and that's important. Totally. Um, also, okay, like. Not only is that a nice political nod that he's doing, but that adds to the idea that death is universal and does not care who you are. He will come mm-hmm. for you regardless. And yeah. I don't know, even the idea, because I noticed this when I was doing the second reading, as you said, death sometimes doesn't show up for quite some time. Yeah. But there is always the threat of death. Death is always in the room. And that's part of the most interesting idea for me is how that that protagonist managed to bind together the whole story by himself, even when he's not around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So here's a tough one. Then Mm -hmm. we have, we have this story that is sprawling across dozens of characters, regions in this world. What at the end of the day, we have, you know, two years of in narrative story here, 29 issues. What is East of West trying to say? I think (laughs) like, what is, what is the message of this book? Um, not to, you know, not the all capital message, but or is there one, I guess, is another question, because I it's a book that I don't find depressing. Right. Mm-hmm. I do not read the I do not read East of West and think like this is a cynical, depressing book. I actually don't yeah. think that. But when you kind of look at it, the politicians are as corrupt as can be. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the the world is yeah. is on fire, sometimes mm-hmm. literally everything is is awful. And I Mm -hmm. think there's a lot of like sort of broad connecting you can do to that to say like, yeah, that kind of feels like how our world feels a lot of the time. You know what I mean? So like we're talking about, Mm -hmm. we were talking before, like the political components of this feel, they feel specific enough to reflect like what is happening in the world, but they also are broad enough to, to be like kind of endless. And I think that's part of the appeal mm-hmm. is, you know, this book was written in 2013, 2014, well before the election of 2016 in America. It's not actually a commentary on that. The, Hickman, as talented as he is, is not that predictive, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yet the, the <laughs> themes and the ideas are broad enough to be like sure. the world's on fire. What, you know, let's, let's tell that story. There's a lot of talk about like it's a hopeless world that we live in what is this book fighting against that because the the people who are actually like trying to prevent the apocalypse are mm-hmm. one the literal embodiment of death <laughs> and two maybe the texas ranger you know and bell right, solomon yeah. like it's and, and i guess jaolin um it, yeah. because they they took her hands and they they took her son uh, but we really don't have a lot of people fighting the apocalypse you know yeah. in a weird way right like it's it's kind of like the 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 horsemen and the uh, the chosen are almost mm-hmm. warring, like trying to bring about this apocalypse with almost no resistance. Yet yeah. it is so challenging because they keep fighting amongst themselves, yeah. which is interesting. But is is this a book about hopelessness, or like is there actually a message of of some sort of redemption or positivity in this? Because I again, like I don't mm-hmm. read it and think, gosh, everything is awful. Like, you know, that's not how it makes me feel, but I also don't know that it's saying a lot beyond that. Okay, that's that's a real big question. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess this is the part in uh, in our podcast where I plug the fact that I'm writing another deep dive 
this time around prophecy to talk about, you know, historically how that superpower has been manifest in human history, mm-hmm. uh, or at least the concept of it and how it gets used in comics. So in the process of, of reading up about that one for my 10,000 words or whatever it's going to turn out to be. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, there's a section that I came across that was on the philosophical idea, the secular idea of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Most notably, it was brought up by Heidegger. And to massively oversimplify what he said, he said that, you know, the state of being, to be truly aware of yourself and your life, is to be constantly thinking about the end of the world, mm. that these things are entwined. Yeah. And his argument, as he went on to talk about it, is the fact that a lot of people try and avoid the truth of that or try and keep from examining what that means for their lives. Right. Which leads to many people, and especially like it's it's definitely representative in the comic, but people who are focused on an end without thinking about the fact that there's a whole lot of middle you have to get through. Mm-hmm. And there are choices to be made and there are things to be considered and there's happiness to be given or tragedy to be wrought i think that's what makes chamberlain such a good character yeah and such an appealing character because he's like he's all middle he's like yeah. i know the end's coming i'm self-aware yeah. enough i want to enjoy the middle and here's yeah. how i'm going to make it happen you know and grant is he's selfish but he's the only guy who's really thinking about the fact that like i can just do anything yeah where most other players in the game and the chosen seem to have this idea that they're just locked into a path right and i think that the book presents I don't know that it's hopeful, but it presents the opportunity for hope because it says if you just accept that this is a thing that you are doing in a way that the world works, you can get the happiness that you need out of the world. You can be a good person or fulfilled or you can change your behavior at any time. Mm-hmm. You know, we definitely see that with death. Uh, we see that with Wolf, at least. I don't know that we've seen that yet with Crow. We see that with Jalen. You know, th- this idea that, like, you can just step off the path and do what either fulfills you or you feel is the right thing to do. That's an interesting answer. I like that a lot. And I would, what I was thinking about hopefulness is probably the next phase of that question uh, in the form of Babylon, in the form mm-hmm. of the son of death and Jalen and his now choices he has to make. Am I going to become the great beast? Am I going to become the great destroyer? Or Mm -hmm. am I just going to be a kid? (laughs) You know, so, so Babylon has this, this major choice to make. And I do think like in him, we see both the, the hopelessness and the hopefulness of the children (laughs) of youth, Mm -hmm. which is obviously it's like a very big, broad metaphor. But I do think when we're thinking about, if you look at the state of the world, if you look at American politics or UK politics, just had a major election that I know upset a lot of people. Right. And you think like, how can this be, right? How can how can so many people think this other thing than what I think, you know, which I think in East to West, like how can so many mm-hmm. people want the end of the world, <laughs> right? Is like, you know, it's kind of yeah. how it feels. I actually do think that is that is a metaphorically very real feeling. You might look to, and I think this a lot, like, mm-hmm. yeah, but at least like young people maybe are moving more towards a more hopeful future, right? Maybe young people are the answer, right? Sure. Think of the kids, think of the children. And I think Babylon is very much the embodiment <laughs> of that metaphor to fight the fact, despite the fact that the message proclaims him to be the great beast, right? So he mm-hmm. is the ultimate, will I follow the order of apocalypse or mm-hmm. will I step off the path, like you said, and and create something new? Mm-hmm. And I do think the decision that is made in part two of this podcast, when we talk about the very end of the comic regarding the fate of Babylon, will tell us Mm -hmm. a lot about 
how Hickman sees this question and how and how Dragota yeah. and Martin and the rest of the team see this question because it, I again like I don't have a ton of hope that Babylon's going to be like a big hero you know there's there's just too much like kill your idols and and we're not playing um it's it's a little like Adrian Veid at the end of Watchmen you know like I'm not some dime store supervillain you know like it's mm-hmm. it's thinking above that certainly so i don't think babylon's just going to be like i love you dad mom everything's going to be great but yeah. how they answer that question specifically will tell us a lot about how east of west ultimately like viewed our totally. world i think so i guess my big my big takeaway from reading this book was i was shocked at how orderly jonathan hickman managed to make the end of the yeah. world that Things were clear. I mean, even when they were political and they were full of intrigue, they were, I knew, I felt I knew what was happening. I felt I knew what was going on sort of off screen so I could follow Mm. another story that we had put down previously and we'll come back to. All the, everything seemed to sort of make a logical sense on top of which at all times I could tell, you know, who was pressing for advantage or who was being wounded or hurt or who was being, you know, waylaid or whatever. Which, again, is, is so unlikely for most pop sci-fi apocalypses right now. That we just, we tend to have these gigantic climactic battles where you have no idea who's on top. And very often, motivations get, get pushed to the side in order to get in more explosions or more body count or more yeah. tragedy. That Hickman was doing that was really fascinating. And it's kind of what pushed me to, to do the deep dive. And read up on this idea and there's a modern school of thought right now in theology that says that mankind has always made these stories uh, the uh, end of the world sure. stories that they were the first ones we really written, we wrote down we created a language just to do it and we've been at it ever since that every major culture makes one so the question is why one of the leading ideas right now is that mankind does it to make order out of a frighteningly chaotic universe if you look at two million years of of human history from homo erectus Mm -hmm. on on human beings have just been possessed by this idea that they can conquer the entire world but death will always be arbitrary and kind of capricious so the apocalypse was really a way of saying like no we will we will put death into order especially the idea of like if the entire world is going to end that's going to be very orderly It's going to tell us when it'll happen. It'll have these milestones that go along the way. You know, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen in a single file kind mm-hmm. of line and that we can all feel a sort of catharsis by this idea that we won't die in a panic. Yeah, I, I find that really interesting because it's so applicable <laughs> to what we're talking mm-hmm. about in this story. Like you can very easily fit the Chosen and the Horsemen into that, no, this needs to happen orderly category. Even if some mm-hmm. of them, like Chamberlain and Bell Solomon, are ultimately not that into that idea, they're kind of playing along sure. because they can they can predict and scheme against order better than they can predict mm-hmm. and scheme against variables, right? That's why Chamberlain, when he brings yeah. his, I think it's niece, into the fold, is like, you're a mathematician, you can predict game theory, you can predict the unpredictable. You know, you can help me do that. Yeah. I can't do that as well when we get outside of the confines of the order of the message and of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um I do think that, like you said, there's the chaos components of this are, it's interesting to me how actually how this, like the exact things you're describing, 
reflect like religion and and not even it's not even just like apocalyptic religion you know not even just end times mm-hmm. prophecies but like the way religion is used to retroactively like defend something so things will happen in this book especially early and then they're like oh it's just like the message said here's this quote that yeah. perfectly sums up what just happened and mm-hmm. it's all done after the mm-hmm. fact and it's like well are you seeing a little of what you want to see, you know, like it works because yeah. when, when Hickman wrote uh, a cup of a cup, a chalice of a chalice before I had no idea what he was talking about, but then you see yeah. uh, a kid board and you add some more context to it. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, that was prophecy. So I find that piece right. of it very interesting. I find all of the chosen very interesting because they're all using religion for different reasons. Like there, there's so much yeah. to be said and I, I haven't fully fleshed out the thought enough to have the conversation in, in tons of detail, but they're all using this religion for their own ends, whether mm-hmm. it's to uh, assume power, whether they really like mm-hmm. the president of the union or who becomes the president of the union seems to be like more of a genuine believer in the order oh, of yeah. the, the message and the prophecy. Whereas, like I said, Chamberlain or Bell Solomon are like, no, this is, or Chamberlain's like, this is a means to an end for power. Bell Solomon's like, I don't even agree with this, but I think I can defend my Republic of mm-hmm. Texas longer if I play along. Um, John Freeman mm-hmm. is there just because, like, he might actually buy into this a little bit more, but in different ways than the other, right? There's there's yeah. all sorts of different fascinating ways that everyone here is like, this religion matters to me because of Y, because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. And I think that's very reflective of, of the way religion gets used in, in our world as well. I will say too, definitely there's a, there's actually like a very modern real world connection to what you're talking about, which is the Mayan calendar 2012. Uh, there was predict there right. was an end times prediction that got a lot of publicity, right? It was very famous um, mm-hmm. that the world was going to end. I think it was December something, 2012. And this book, East mm-hmm. West number one comes out March, 2013. So, like, it is actually, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it's, like, quite closely mm-hmm. tied to that phenomenon being as popularized as I remember it. I don't remember an End Times Prophecy getting yeah. more attention than that this decade. And it launches right in the wake of that. Certainly not this decade. I would say that Y2K was pretty good there for yeah. a while. I mean, as as laughable as that is sure, right, right now, people lost their minds about that. And that, that really didn't have much to do with religion. Yeah, I there's a... There's two things I'd say to to that in response was that one, I it took me until now when you were talking about that, that I realized that I think I've been thinking about who played what role in The Chosen. And I definitely agree that the the person who was in charge of the union was the um, was the true believer and the uh, the Confederacy was opportunists. I think the endless nation was the one that had the chosen people. Yeah, right. I that's a. I hadn't really thought about that. That's fascinating. The other thought was that there's a comedian, Dylan Morin, who's, um, I think, Scottish, Welsh? I don't remember. (laughs) Who had the comment that in the 20th century, religion is just a formalized panic around death. Yeah. And you see a lot of that in the book. The idea of, like, we will all come around and agree upon this fact, and we will just permanently group think about it and just hold people into it yeah well in 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 terms of okay broader messages it is definitely like everyone in this book is scared of death and he is literal Mm -hmm. here right he's he's i guess anthropomorphized in the world but like it's a walking embodiment of death and how everyone reacts to that fear of death sort of tells you about like 
what it means to live, right? So death is out here in the world and he is plotting to kill us. What do we do? Do we turn Mm -hmm. to the message and this religion and try to end the world before he can kill us for whatever whatever that means, right? Because there is that lack of clarity, I think, early too. What does the apocalypse mean? What does it mean for them Mm -hmm. to end the world? So if they bring about the apocalypse and there's war and everything's on fire, what do the chosen think they're getting out of that? And those answers seem to differ as well, right? Um, So, you know, because I think a lot of times if there's like, well, if I help these godlike beings in their aim, yes, humanity will perish, but I will ascend to a greater plane or something. I Mm -hmm. will get something better. We haven't really gotten a lot of like specifics Mm -hmm. around what those promises might be or what those expectations might be, um, which I find interesting because then to me, it makes Chamberlain so much easier to connect to. Because he's like, I can mm-hmm. enjoy good liquor and and all the pleasures of of wealth and power here on Earth. I don't mm-hmm. know what I get when the apocalypse ends. Whereas the president of the yeah. union, who is about as much fun, I think, as Hickman could have, like <laughs> like writing a person of power who just has the utmost disdain for her constituents. <laughs> you know, the the peasants oh at God, her feet. Yeah. Um, she is like she thinks. She thinks highly of this, but I'm like, well, what do you think you're getting? So I find that curious mm-hmm. as well. Um, and, and maybe we'll see in part two if there's a little more detail around that. Yeah, I really hope that there was no actual promise made and that mm-hmm. these were just assumptions that these that the heads of the chosen made thinking like, oh, I'm I'm being told this and I'm a smart person. Therefore, this gives yeah. me an advantage in some way. The president of the union believes she's a true believer. So she believes that she'll get some kind of benefit in the afterlife as you brought up and chamberlain says i don't believe you're here to help me because no one's here to help me but i can use this to my advantage now you know the endless nation seems to believe that their people will be the only ones to ascend to the afterlife by the way that they talk and now prc is in the interesting position again very much like buddhism that their leader embraces and kind of loves death as this natural part of things which is if intentional a, a really good idea not not sure what to say about John Freeman and his group. I don't quite understand their ilk, other than I think that they just see it as maybe they only see the apocalypse as a way to hurt people. Like this will weaken my enemies. That's so I interesting. Can use it to my advantage that way. They are. I, I would agree. They are the trickiest ones to explore and explain. Um, again, mm-hmm. like I would like to spend more time in the kingdom. I think in the series to to get more feel of that because yeah. they're. The things that we know about them is they have accumulated vast amounts of wealth and are very proud of it because obviously mm-hmm. like this is the African American nation, basically, is the way that it is portrayed. I don't I yeah. don't know if it's literally all that. Like if it's all runaways or not runaway slaves, but like sl- they were slaves in the uprising of the Civil War and that is the entirety of the populace, but that's certainly what we yeah. see. Um so to <clears throat> to actually mm-hmm. basically say like, no, we've claimed this, this is ours. That's more important to them to hold on to, certainly, because of the fact that they were enslaved Mm -hmm. by the likes Mm -hmm. of the Union, who now they have to, uh, or by the Confederacy in particular, but it's like, you know, they enter into these very terse alliances Mm -hmm. with them, even though you can tell, like, they don't, they're very clear, they don't respect the authority of anyone else. They are the kingdom, right? They are the only ones claiming, like, a monarchy of of sorts um, in the way that they do, so... To say what John Freeman is looking for, he's he's a complex character because I think there's a mix, right? I think there's a mix of belief mm-hmm. 
because he was raised by Shiveo of the Endless Nation, and he considers Wolf his brother, right? So he's got like a That's mix right. of belief, but I think That's also right. of shrewdness about him, of calculating like, I also want to see mm-hmm. my rivals defeated, and and like, or at a minimum, mm-hmm. you know, they talk a lot about leverage. Like, I want to be having leverage over them. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I think you could talk about each of the seven in tons of detail. You could talk about... Ezra the prophet you could talk about Babylon like that's the cool thing about this book is there's so many characters again like it's Mm -hmm. that Thronesian sense of you can have a lot of deep conversations around various moving parts and and it can just kind of go on forever yeah and I love the interplay with the fact that the three horsemen came back as children and are still indoctrinated into their you know path Mm -hmm. of destruction meanwhile Babylon is born a child probably around the same mm-hmm. time and is force-fed the same messaging, but he he has enough awareness to be able to make a choice that the horsemen don't seem to yeah. be able to make. Yeah, And that, that contrast is fascinating to me. I can't wait to see how they play that off in the end because there's got to be a conflict between the two, between the, the three horsemen and Babylon yeah, himself. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, making the, making the three resurrected horsemen children... Is such an interesting decision because they are. It's almost like it's almost wrong to call them evil because they just are their natures, right? They are what they are designed to be. There is also a bigger question. I don't know if you have an answer to this about like who do they answer to, right? Because I think like broadly they are following the message, but they're you know kind of like we Mm -hmm. said in terms of restructuring the apocalypse. There's no like and this message comes from God above type thing that I've seen at least that I can remember certainly in part one so that'll be interesting as well like I it's just Mm -hmm. what they are and what they do and there's just no there's no really breaking out of it for them Um, with the exception of maybe conquest who you know does have this motherly affection or it's it's a weird motherly relationship with um with Ezra the prophet of the end times well, yeah, like to conquer something is to want something, mm. right? And to want something is cousin to loving mm. something. So that's a that was a great pickup by Hickman. I also got the idea reading uh, the specifically about the the three horsemen. The idea that one, I thought that they were following the message in the way that very small children will just blindly follow an authority. Yeah. They just naturally assume that it's practically divine in nature and must be very followed. literal. And on top of which, that there's there's an aspect to kids that you could interpret as like pure evil because they're just they're possessed purely by need mm-hmm. at times and have no concept of the damage that they that they cause in order to yeah. do that, which is, you know, not actually to say they're evil. Please don't at me. <laughs> but, you know, it's very easy to see young kids playing and be like, that's almost gruesome. That's that's it, it's a frightening thing yeah. to see at times. Yeah. So right. No, I I can I can relate just in the sense of having two very young children, where it's like, sure, you need to guide them to to uh, <laughs> protect some of those more animalistic instincts, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you guide them, the, like if I was into the idea of my son biting people, I could have that. <laughs> I could make that happen. <laughs> I have generally chosen not to. So. Um, okay. Did you have any other big East of West part one ideas? I mean, I think my takeaway for this for everyone is through everything we've said, 
this book is really, really fascinating, I think, in, in many, many ways. I think there's you can read this and pick up a lot of different messages, a lot of different ideas, and frankly, a lot mm-hmm. of different highlights. Um, it is, I think, mm-hmm. like you said, it is a bit Shakespearean in, in terms of like, you know, the the scope of it and just the nature of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. There, there are sequences where, again, like it's so much more about the conversations people are having than it is about anything actually happening which can be frustrating yeah. i think sometimes in in storytelling but mm-hmm. here i just find it i i like i said it's a page turner so if that sounds appealing to you or, or sounds incongruous to you i would recommend either way checking it out for yourself if you haven't already um if you have explored the story mm-hmm. we're going to be back with part two where we talk about issues 30 to 45 as east west comes to a conclusion in january 2019 so please consider liking and subscribing uh, if you're watching via the Comic Carol YouTube channel, uh, subscribe to Best Comics Ever, the podcast. Or as always, you can find John and myself writing over at comicbookherald.com. John, any final uh, questions or, or big picture takeaways? Well, I got to say one more for the road because <laughs> now I'm possessed of the spirit of it. Now talking to you, it's the first time that I've realized that the historical angle on the kingdom might have been that, you know, terribly speaking, the slavery mm. was the economic engine of the South. And once that gets mm. taken away, once the meteor hits, no wonder the kingdom would be so rich because they just mm-hmm. kept that economic mm-hmm. power for themselves. And that's the best kind of vengeance that you could yeah. write into that. That's so cool. Yeah, I totally agree. And, I, you know, nice. yeah, I I didn't give Hickman, Dragota, and the team like a ton of credit for maybe the the complexity and the the nuance of like the racial components to this book but then when yeah. you actually step back and look at mm-hmm. the kingdom mm-hmm. and the endless nation and the the you know Xiaolin and and the Mao mm-hmm. China it's like PRC. you have asian americans african americans and native americans these are like the powerful regions mm-hmm. and it's all of the the more standard like you know east coast you know union confederacy texas even that are subjugated mm-hmm. that are that are dealing with much bigger problems, at least early in yeah. the story, um, and are kind of falling apart on their own. So mm-hmm. there's there's definitely some thought there and a little more care that goes into it that I, I do think is worth crediting um, because it, it it doesn't have... Oh, definitely. Th- I might be wrong, and I'm sure there are people who've, who've thought about this in, in some detail, and I'd be curious to hear those thoughts as well, but it doesn't have moments that make me sort of cringe or make me sort of grimace and think like, Oh, that is yeah. that is going to yeah. raise a red flag for a lot of people. It skirts that, I think, probably pretty intentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all kind of it all lines up with you know the mm-hmm. sadder aspects of American history, and it's also fascinating. I think it works because the no side is really completely dominant. You know, like uh, Texas is a great example. They've got the Rangers, who are supremely powerful, like yeah. second only to death. It seems like. But they're also the weakest nation because historically Texas only joined America because they had to fight off. Mm-hmm. They really wanted to be separate from Mexico and that the, the Mexican army was, uh, I think it was Santa Ana's army, was coming in to, to conquer them. And so finally they joined forces with America just to get extra troops. So without that happening in this history, them staying their own nation, they're supremely yeah. weak because of their pride. That's a great yeah. balance right there. The idea that the the Native American tribes are so incredibly powerful, but they're also so completely mm-hmm. consumed by tribalism that they have. They they were talking about um, they're not inbred. The uh, the white mm-hmm. nations was one of the comments that they made, which speaks fascinating ways to how their yeah. mindset must be working in this history. 
So, yeah, I think that's kind of the part that kept me from thinking it ever really had cringe, that one, it's it's so obviously tied to what has actually happened and how people seem to have felt at the time, but also that nobody is supreme, right. no one is blameless. Right. No, there, there's certainly fault on all sides. So um, at times too much. Mm-hmm. At times it's hard to, to even know, who am, I, who am I pulling for? What do I want to happen here? <laughs> I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, all right, John, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, again, this is just part one. We're going to come back in part two, but I think this will do it for us. Again, you can find more of our stuff over at comicbookherald.com, and please consider liking and subscribing to either YouTube or the podcast. As always, we'll include links in the show notes to the the notes that we took, which I think covers uh, actually quite a bit more than what we talked about here, if you can believe it. And again, we'll be back with part two in January 2019. <laughs>